Welcome to the Cruise Consulting Podcast. I'm your host today, Healy Jones. I'm joined by Gautam Gupta, who's a venture capitalist with TCV, one of the largest and most impressive technology investors in the world. Uh, really looking forward to our conversation here with Gautam, but quick word from our sponsor first. Hey, this is Healy Jones, VP of Financial Strategy here at Cruise Consulting. And I want to say thanks to our podcast sponsor, ARC. At Cruise, we've got a number of clients successfully using ARC to manage their deposits, payments, access financing, all in one place. One of the things that ARC provides that's really great is over a quarter of a million dollars in FDSC coverage. Their insurance program goes beyond the standard limit and it secures up to five and a quarter million dollars. So startups that have even more cash than that can go and access treasury solutions that provide yield and safety. If you're a startup looking for a secure financial solution that can help you scale, please check out our sponsor, ARC, at arc.tech. All right, we're back. Gautam, how are you? We, we've known each other for a long time, both uh, bo- both coasts. Uh, how's it going? Great. Uh, it's great to see you. It's great to do this with you. Um, and uh, yeah, no, uh, excited to kind of uh, cap off the year with this. Oh, yeah, awesome. Yeah, we're, we're recording this in just very end of November, uh, 2023. So just <laughs> folks listen to this a few years from now, I'm sure it'll be still popular. Uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the <I> date. So. <laughs> exactly. Um, do, do, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and sort of how and why you got into venture? Yeah, sure. So I started my career, uh, in venture investing at general catalyst. I, uh, had the just dumb luck actually of joining the firm as an intern when I was in college. Um, so I joined the firm when I was 18 years old as a sophomore in college, spent two and a half years interning there, uh, joined them full time after undergrad, spent a total of eight years at the firm, uh, and then ended up deciding to leave to start a company in the e-commerce space. So I left in 2012 to start a company called NatureBox. Ran that business as CEO for six and a half years and then decided uh, after seeing what the other side looked like of operating a business, it was the right uh, thing for me to go back uh, to the investing side. Uh, And so I handed over the reins of that business and uh, decided to go back into venture investing about six years ago. That's awesome. And I actually remember I remember the company you founded, HBox. We were subscribers uh, and ate a lot of those snacks. I think you had these little salted nut things that were awesome. That was a thank you. That was a really good service. That was really Yeah, great. thank you for for being a subscriber. Business is still around today. Um, you know, we sold we sold it, but the, the brand and, and the business still still exists. So uh, it was, so, a yeah, fun, it was a great product. Fun ride. Product. Uh, you know, cool. definitely learned a lot of hard lessons uh, running that business. <laughs> yeah, you, you picked a tough industry. So uh, for sure, subscription, e-commerce is hard. That's yeah. really hard. <laughs> That's uh, pretty much almost as hard as it gets, I'd say. <laughs> I, 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 joke, I jokingly say that to a lot of founders, which is, you know, uh, I, I don't think you could have picked a worse market. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I do think, yeah, physical inventory uh, is, is something that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy. So. For, for, particularly something that's a little bit perishable, too. That's uh, yeah. you're really up in your game there. It's amazing. So uh, let, let's talk a little bit about where you are now, TCV. Like, what is TCV for folks who don't know and, and what which part of that business do you work in? Yeah, so TCB is uh, a firm that's been around for 27 years. Uh, the initials stand for Technology Crossover Ventures. Um, and uh, really, that is emblematic of uh, the history of the firm. TCB was a pioneer in crossover investing. So investing pre-IPO and then doubling down post-IPO. Uh, that strategy served the firm incredibly well uh, over the last two and a half decades. We, as a firm, decided to launch an early stage fund about two and a half years ago, 
which is called TCV Velocity. Uh, and that is the group that I head up uh, along with my partner, Matt Brennan, where we invest in Series A, B, and C stage companies, really with the thesis of um, trying to be, you know, kind of a full stack or a multi-stage investor starting at Series A, B, C, but being able to double down over the life of the company and support the company, um, you know, both as a private uh, and and public company over its course of its history. That, that's actually really interesting. So let's say you're a founder. What are the advantages of choosing a venture investor who can support you from the A all the way through to the IPO? Yeah. So I think it's a couple things. So, you know, obviously one, I think the market is seeing today just the power of kind of deep pocketed investors and, and investors that can support you through kind of a, a cyclical low in, in, you know, from a macro perspective, right? Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, the firm has to invest across pre-IPO and, and post-IPO. Um, but I do think people are sort of seeing the importance of, of just investors that have deeper pockets and that ability to, to you know, support the company when capital markets are soft. Uh, I think the added advantage of being able to go to cross over and, and invest in, in the public market is, you know, often technology companies have multiple chapters of, of their life, right? And, right? and, you know, new products that define the next 10 years that are fundamentally different from the, the prior 10 years, right, of, of the company's history. And, you know, in the evolution uh, of, of a business, you know, and kind of going from chapter one to chapter two or chapter two to chapter three, you know, there can be low points and, and just, you know, harder points of that journey where having an investor that has been able to see the quality of execution and understands the strategy, um, you know, and how these, you know, products or, or markets or initiatives align, I think can be really helpful. And, and not only gives you, you know, sort of the support that you need during a tough time, but also gives the market a signal um, that can be uh, very powerful as well. Right. Yeah. Just to say that there's a smart investor who's been with the company for a while, who's Continuing to invest in the business is a, a pretty strong signal. Like that's great. Uh, that's great. So, you know, we've at the end of 2023, we've experienced a pretty big pullback in the venture market, and it started just a little at the public companies, and later just a tiny one. Yeah, I mean, somewhat. You, you may have noticed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it started at the late stage public, yeah. and has kind of worked its way down through the stack. Yeah. What was it like to kind of live that and watching the contraction at a fund that you know kind of bridges? a huge percent of the well, company's life cycles. You know, the first thing is you start to think about your existing portfolio, right? And um, because uh, the Velocity Fund was launched two and a half years ago, um, we're still building the portfolio. So we were in a very fortunate position where most of our portfolio companies have raised fairly fresh capital and have a lot of runway. Many of them are funded through profitability or, you know, are profitable today. And so I think, look, we were in a very fortunate position, but I do think the first place that your mind goes is shore up your existing portfolio and make sure uh, that your existing portfolio doesn't have to go out and, and raise capital in a, in a tough market. And so I, I do think that was a big part of the back half of 22 and even coming into 23, um, just what a, a lot of folks were spending their time, where they were spending their time. And then I think you sort of transition from there to, okay, well, where are the new opportunities? And I would say 2023 has kind of had two uh, forces at play. One is obviously where are the opportunities relative to the downstream capital risk? And so I think that has favored businesses 
with strong fundamentals, you know, unit economics, low cash burn, mm-hmm. the ability to get to cash positive yeah. with an incremental, you know, 20, 30 million dollars of capital, like a manageable number of capital, a manageable size uh, okay. or quantum. And then I think the second force that's really come to, to play this year has just been um, the question of how AI will impact industries broadly. And then, you know, at more of a micro level, how AI will impact company building. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I think the two ways of, of thinking about that are, you know, will AI make technical moats and product moats, you know, more commoditized, um, you know, from an industry perspective? And then how do you build a company? Well, will companies require less capital, you know, because they're leveraging things like Copilot, right? right. Or, you know, AI assistance to do knowledge work more efficiently. And what's the implication of that on the venture business? So, I, you know, I think the, there have kind of been those two forces at play this year that I think all in, you know, you're seeing fewer financings. The financings that are getting done are heavily favoring companies with great unit economic, essentially companies that have figured out how to grow. Right. With, Pro- with, with, with decent fundamentals, right? Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. then the other piece of that is, you know, industries or businesses that are maybe more at risk as it relates to, you know, what the potential impact of AI could be are certainly, you know, uh, fallen you know, yeah. further out of favor. Uh, on the flip side, industries that have the potential to be disrupted by AI um, are, you know, having a lot, you know, are garnering much more interest, right? So sure. like think yep. about like legal tech, right? Like how many legal tech AI businesses uh, have been funded this year that maybe a few years ago just would, sure. would really have not been that yeah. interesting. So. Yeah, so uh, so many different ways I want to take the conversation now. I was definitely <laughs> going to ask you about AI and you already opened that box up. So very tempted to go that way. But I also wanted to ask more about sort of just what it takes to raise A, B, and C rounds in, in, in this environment. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you pick which way you want to go first. Well, why don't we take the the last part of that, which is just what does it take to, to raise uh, in That's this right. environment? Yeah. Um, and look, I, I think the, the best way that I can explain it, well, so maybe stepping back, right? I, I do think that in a market climate like today, if you ask 10 VCs for their opinion on how best to raise capital, you'll get 11 answers. So <laughs> I do, you know, with humility, just want to say like it's one data point, right? Um, but I think the best way that I've found to explain uh, just how the market has reset is it's really gone back to rule of, right? So if you remember or think of the construct of rule of 40, right. essentially what rule of 40 or just rule of uh, tries to combine is the growth rate of a company along with the profitability. And so you get more credit for growing faster and you get more credit for being more profitable, but you get less credit or, you know, p- uh, sort of negative, uh, right. you know, from an addition perspective of low growth or, or you know, high cash burn, right? Um, and I think the market has essentially gone back to that, right? Which is we're looking for companies that are growing well and are either profitable or have a path to profitability. Obviously, at a Series A, that's going to be very... What you're looking for there is going to be very different, right? Companies Mm -hmm. have to uh, over-execute or or out-execute on growth, and there's going to be less sensitivity around profitability, right? Maybe a path to profitability or at least fundamentally good unit economics and and go-to-market efficiency. And then as you get to the B and the C, 
and even later rounds, there's going to be a lot more focus on profitability, even at a reduced growth rate, right? Yeah. So, so, so that being said, yeah. though, I still, I, from the data from our clients, it still seems like there's a threshold of growth you can't go below. I right? think that's like absolutely still, right. That's you still have right. to hit those crazy high growth numbers, like numbers that are really challenging to hit. You just have yeah. to do it with better unit economics. Um, does the triple, triple, double rule still apply kind of from coming through the A's and the B's? Are you still seeing that high of growth rate? I think that that's generally right. What I would say is, look, at an A or B, you should be thinking about doubling your business, obviously dependent on the base, right? So if the base is a million bucks of ARR, maybe a little different if we're talking about five or six million of ARR, you, you know, yep. but I think generally at least a double uh, to at least, you know, get around done. And then I think as you get to the C, it probably becomes even more, uh, you know, sort of dependent on uh, what the threshold is that we're talking about, right? If we're talking about 20 million or 50 million of ARR, you know, very, very different. Okay. Um, but even there, you're seeing a prioritization of like 50% plus year over year growth, right? Like, okay. I, I think it'd be very hard to get something done um, at, at lower than that. Okay. That's really good to know. What What about um, metrics that were popular in 2020, 2021, like LTV to CAC? Are yeah. people still looking at that or is that is that kind of gone by the wayside? You know, it's funny. I think there's still a, a lot of focus on LTV to CAC, payback periods, um, just overall go-to-market efficiency, less focus on metrics like CAR, right? You know, if you think about contracted ARR, you know, if you think about some of these things that maybe were, you know, very forward-looking metrics, there's a lot less focus on, on you know, things like that. Um, a lot more focus, not surprisingly, on gross margins, right? Right. Um, and making sure that there's either gross margin leverage in the business today, or a very clear path. Yeah, um, I've always, I've always margins. loved gross margins, and I was a very unpopular guy at cocktail parties in 2021. But uh, yeah. <laughs> people yeah. will talk to me. <laughs> as I think, uh, as I think, probably anyone that was kind of think, thinks of themselves as a more fundamental investor, right? Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. So for a little bit about what I'm seeing is that, you know, for at least for Series B, either having or have or having a good path toward like a 70, 80 percent gross profit margin is kind of seems to be like a bar that is necessary at this point. How are yeah. you looking at that? Like, what are you thinking about when you're evaluating gross margin? So we look at a lot of different verticals and I would say it's definitely vertical dependent. Good point. Um, you know, in healthcare, it might be slightly lower, you, you yeah. know, but I do think that for a typical software business, you know, 70s to, to 80 is a good benchmark and that's a good place to be. I think there's a lot of credit you can get with having demonstrated, you know, sort of uh, ability to improve gross margins. So if, mm -hmm. if an investor looks at, hey, where were margins a year ago relative today, and you've shown the ability to improve, and you have a credible path to continue that improvement, I think you can potentially de-risk some of whatever the number is today. Let's say it's 60 today, right? It was 40 a year ago, and you're on track to get to 70 plus in the next 12 months. I think you know that's a story, that's a narrative that works. Uh, from my perspective. That makes sense. And I think that's reassuring to founders who are thinking about creating a profitable product. Like that's, <laughs> that's yeah. good. Yeah. And he, he, one other thought just on, on margins real quick. Um, and, and this, you know, 
kind of came from some of my time as an operator, but I'm seeing a lot more companies think about pricing. And I think it's a really positive thing, right? Taking pricing up where they can, or just being more thoughtful about how they package and bundle. Um, and I, I just think that that's a hugely important driver to the business. Um, often, you know, price changes are one of the fastest and easiest ways that you can improve gross margins mm-hmm. in the business. Look, sometimes, you know, it's, it's, um, you're, you're kind of squeezing, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, whatever the expression is, uh, scre- blood out of the stone or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's maybe not the long-term smart thing to do for the business. Um, but, you know, I am starting to see a lot more founders take that seriously. And I think that's a really positive thing. I mean, the ability to raise your prices or have slightly higher prices is a sign, right? It can show that your product is differentiated or a premium product. And it can also show that the clients are really loyal to you and willing to stick around if your prices go up some, right? Yeah. But you know, having have, having done sort of the price increase exercise at maybe three companies now as an operator, I can tell you it's hard. And, and a lot of founders are, are afraid to do it. Like it's it, it's it's intimidating. Yeah, it is. And I, I think, you know, the, the market was so um, uh, incentivizing growth over the last few years that I, I also think a lot of founders just the incentive to take price up and introduce friction mm-hmm. just wasn't there. Right. Yeah. And so nobody has thought of pricing in the last you know three, four years. So, you know, I think that's the other unique uh, uh, angle there. What are you looking for? when you're seeing a pitch these days, like what, what makes you happy when someone comes and pitches you and like, Oh, this is something I want to dig into. You know, look, I, I think, uh, what, what we're seeing, um, that really resonates is, um, you know, we tend to look for businesses that do have strong fundamentals, right. Um, you know, where, uh, capital efficiency has mm-hmm. been, you know, uh, there's been a, a track record of capital efficiency. I think the, other angle is really category leadership, right? Um, I think there are a lot of companies, you know, just because of the amount of seed funding that exists in the ecosystem, there's a lot more competition today in tech markets than there was 10 or 15 years ago, right? And so the ability to be the category leader, have a unique, you know, product uh, uh, driven moat or, you know, the beginnings of a product driven moat. Um, in a category uh, is really exciting. Um, and so I do think, you know, one of the things that, that we hear is it's not just the fundamentals and the numbers, the quant, but it's how you marry that with the narrative mm-hmm. and the narrative being, you know, uh, the, the sort of early category leadership and what you can do to extend that with the addition of, of you know, new capital from the outside. And so I, I think those are kind of like the two big components of, of the successful pitch, right? Is like, you know, showing that you've built fundamentally a strong business uh, and that you have a perspective or an approach uh, for how to win the market. Awesome. That's really good advice. I, I guess my follow-up question would be, how can, as a founder, you approach that, let's build um, you know, a strong moat in this market when there may be several other competitors sort of nipping at your heels in the yeah. market, right? We've definitely seen some of our clients that are really great uh, suddenly have a bunch of competitors come in when other VCs realize that this is an interesting market, right? And so, you know, all of a sudden you went from having like one or two old school competitors to having like a dozen new venture back competitors in your space. Like how, how would you 
counsel a founder to uh, to deal with that? Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I tend to think of these things um, as there's kind of two buckets of, you know, potential, um, you know, advantage or edge. Um, so one is around distribution. And so if there's anything that the business has done to give itself an edge in distribution, could be as simple as like, you know, how you've built your go-to-market uh, or, you know, the channels that you dominate and win in relative to others and, you know, your share of that channel. I think that's one bucket, right, is the distribution edge. And the second edge um, is is sort of around product stickiness, right? And I think in many markets, there, there are always going to be a number of competitors. The reality, I think, in most, you know, software-driven markets is, if you can get some, if you can get a, a customer to sign up and have a sticky product, um, even if you know the cost to acquire a customer goes up, it becomes more competitive, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, the unit economic math of the business should still work, right? It's it's heavily retention dependent or sensitive to, right. towards retention. And so I think the second bucket is like, what are the things in the product that drive stickiness? Could be everything from integrations to how you, uh, your approach to collaboration, to how you think about, um, you know, new, the new product roadmap or product yeah. extension, um, feature development uh, in the future. That's really good advice. That is awesome. All right, let's do it. Let's talk about AI. Yeah. It's, uh, it's obviously pretty big. You know, our half, halfway through the year, I think our clients collectively had raised about $2 billion and like wow. 1.2 billion of that was AI companies. So there's definitely something happening in this space. First of all, is this a bubble or is AI for real? Well, I think with everything in the venture world, there there's always going to be some failure rate. And, you know, um, I do think tech and, and sort of venture specifically are, are kind of cyclical. You know, it's a cyclical business industry where you're sort of never going to be able to get away from the bubble effect. There'll always be, you know, some amount mm-hmm. of you know, bubbles being created and, and popped and, you know, and, and yeah. but I, I think in this instance, I'm pretty bullish on just the impact that AI um, as a kind of broad-based technology will have on business. There's no doubt that some of the things getting funded today probably will not exist or will not be durable businesses. But I also don't think of that as like anything that dramatically unique relative to, you know, past technology cycles, Right. So, so when you're evaluating a business that has a strong AI component or even AI central to the pitch, yeah, what are you looking for to prove that this is a durable business? Yeah. So look, I think it goes back to those two dimensions. So um, I think one of the biggest things, if we're talking about applications, right, the application layer, I think one of the biggest things is, is there something about the... Um, AI feature, the kind of native AI approach that the company has taken that unlocks a distribution edge or, you know, product, product stickiness edge, right? I just think companies, it, it, it's tricky on, on the first bucket okay. um, because, you know, the incumbents tend to have a pretty significant distribution advantage in a given vertical. Mm-hmm. And so by just being AI or having an AI, gen AI feature, um, does that allow you to compete from a distribution perspective? Maybe, maybe not. And then, you know, how quickly can incumbents replicate and kind of uh, develop that feature set 
uh, you know, before you can get to scale with your business. So I think those are some of the big questions around some of the AI applications is, hey, where are the true unlocks? Um, but, you know, look, I, I, I do think um, where it comes to AI as an ingredient and the software product is really about a fundamental rethink in workflow. Okay. I think that's super interesting because, you know, to me, that's even if there's not a distribution edge there, there should be a product stickiness edge, you know, because you've taken a completely new approach to workflow. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about the Gen AI feature. Right, right. Right. Yeah. So obviously we see clients using AI in a bunch of different ways. And at this yeah. point, I think about... Uh, I don't think I know. The, just under sixty percent of our clients are paying OpenAI on a monthly basis. Um, yeah. A subset of those are using the API, right? So it's not just like a marketing person using it to write something. It's they're actually using the API yeah. to do something interesting. And some of those folks are using it to kind of unlock a new product offering or make something less manual, where they had a lot of data they were transforming, and it's either something they have to do sort of one-off or it's just sort of part of the stream of how their product works. There's this big data thing that's created and it needs to get cleaned up or moved around or some analysis needs to go on top of it. They're using AI for that. And then we're seeing another subset where they're using open AI to actually build a particular feature. Most popular one seems to be like a chat with me type of thing, but, or, you know, chat with the product, yep. but, yep. but, you know, we're, we're seeing folks kind of leverage a third party, in this case, open AI tool to do that. Do you have an opinion on using like OpenAI to run your AI company or, you know, somebody else's model or does it have to be like your own special proprietary model that you've built? Well, look, I think in most of what we're seeing um, today, uh, the returns to building your own model, um, that math is pretty hard. Um, and, and so I think it obviously depends on the application and there's some verticals where maybe it does make sense, but, uh, I think by and large, the models that exist are improving at such a fast rate and pricing is, you know, sort of, uh, commoditizing at such a fast rate that it just doesn't make sense to do that work. I think the sort of best in class approaches that we've seen are, flexible approaches where you know you may be leveraging open ai today for the majority of you know uh gen ai needs that that the product has um but you've built your uh, software in a in a way where you can be multi-model you know and and sit across multiple vendors in the future so very cool that's really awesome wow so let, let, why don't we shift to more of kind of a rapid fire question uh, yeah, question sure. question yeah. phase here. So first of all, so what, what's one piece of advice that you wish every founder knew before they walked into a, a pitch meeting with the VC? Well, so I think as I think about my own experience pitching uh, venture capitalists and trying to raise capital, um, you know, I always kind of took the approach of the two things you want to achieve in in a first meeting are convey why someone should invest in the company. Like essentially what's the most exciting thing about the business? It could be the growth rate that you're seeing. It could be, you know, the fact that you've achieved, uh, you know, a technical achievement or advancement or product achievement. But there's usually one thing that sort of maps to why you're raising capital now, right? Okay. Um, You know, either you de-risk something in the business or you found something that enables you 
to accelerate the business with the addition of outside capital. The first part is clearly articulating that as early into the slide deck as you can, right? And so that's like literally the second slide is, you know, the growth rate or whatever, right? And then the second piece is to not shy away from the risks and reasons that someone would say no. And I think a lot of founders sort of wait for the questions to come up, right? Like, I can't tell you how many decks I've seen where that don't talk about, you know, gross margins, right? Or the burn efficiency, you know, kind of the, the mm-hmm. yeah. you know, cash burn of the business and how that's been problematic, right? Um, and, you know, I think waiting for an investor to ask that question takes the opportunity away of being able to craft the narrative and be able to, you know, from the get-go, like sort of convey why, you know, this was an issue, but you've de-risked it or, mm-hmm. um, you know, why uh, it, it is maybe not as material as someone might think, right? Um, and so I do think like sometimes people avoid the bad news. I think making sure that you understand what that is and message against it is really important. I like that. I, um, it builds a lot of credibility, right? Totally. It builds a lot of credibility to say, here are the things that haven't gone well or that we're still working on or that you know, we've just started to figure out. Yeah. One of my f- friends used to uh, characterize this as like, you don't want to bet on stupid, which is essentially like, you don't want to bet that an investor is an idiot yeah. and like won't figure something <laughs> out. Right? It's way better to, you know, sort of assume that, that people will eventually ask the question. And so rather than wait for them to ask it, like, why not just frame your answer, you know, in, in the pitch? Yeah. Be upfront with it so you can control the narrative. Yeah. Totally. That's really good advice. That's really good advice. All right. Next rapid fire question. Although it could yeah. take, take a few minutes to answer if you, if you want. Okay. What item on a term sheet do founders least understand? Hmm. That's a great, uh, really interesting question. Um, I'm trying to think back to my own experience uh, of raising capital and what were the things I least understood. Uh, I think probably, and and you know, a lot of this is not actually in uh, a term sheet, but they're in the definitive docs of a financing. Are voting thresholds? Okay. Um, you know, you hopefully <laughs> you know get to a point. It never get to a point where you really need to worry too much about these thresholds. But you know, they're they're um, certainly in sticky situations. Like if you end up needing to do. A recap or if there's a down round or, you know, let's say an acquisition that maybe some investors are happy with and, and some investors are not. Um, typically, these voting thresholds can be pretty important. Um, and just understanding where those are and how much of your investor base you would have to gather, you know, to, to sort of uh, be able to effectuate something is, is important. That's pretty interesting advice. I had Hadn't often thought about that, but now that we're seeing more and more down rounds, that becomes yeah. pretty apparent that, hey, maybe the folks that invested later don't like this, but the earlier stage people do or vice versa, depending on sort of how the preference stack is built. So um, that's really, I mean, that's a good tip. That's really good. All right. And then kind of one, one final question here. What is the most satisfying aspect of working in venture capital? You know, I, I feel like this industry, um, there's kind of two ways to think about this business. There's the company building you know, side, which is not that we 
are building companies, but we, you know, get to help, right, and assist founders. You're there. You're at the table. Um, And then the second piece is capital deployment or investment management. I've always really been uncomfortable thinking of this business as the latter, because I think that, you know, if you think about it as capital deployment, you know, you, you end up prioritizing the wrong things, right? Which is just how do I scale and invest more dollars and that sort of thing. And so I've always thought of it as, as just, um, you know, company building. And, and that is the most satisfying part, right? Is um, being able to, to work hand in hand with the founder. There are going to be good times and bad. Um, and, you know, there are going to be companies that work and, and don't work. Um, but being able to, to work with founders to hopefully build companies that, that change the world in, you know, anywhere from small to big ways uh, is, is really rewarding and, and exciting, you know, and I, I think we're incredibly lucky to do these jobs. So um, couldn't, couldn't be happier about it. Yeah, I agree. It's really, it's really inspiring and sometimes a lot of fun to, yeah. to be there as it's happening and to be part of it. That's awesome. Well, so, so God, how, how do people reach out to you if they want to connect? Yeah, so um, you know, I'm, I'm on Twitter, uh, G Ramblings, and and then email. Um, you know, I, I live in my inbox uh, for better or worse. Um, so I'm at uh, gupta at, at tcb.com. Amazing, excellent. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, maybe we should do this again next year, and we'll see how the market ends up next year, and we can uh, we can see how we did with yeah. our AI predictions. But uh, thank thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Awesome.